Okay, today we're going to continue with the doctrine of justification, part five. And I'm very close to finishing a translation of Romans. And that will be, I think I got it down to 26 pages, so that'll be coming out soon. Also, we started a new series this past Wednesday and called Doing and Living Theology. And we're resuming on Sundays the doctrine of justification under the title of Romans Doctrines. I suppose we could turn once again to Romans one seventeen for a text verse, but we'll be referring to quite a few verses today. The doctrine of justification, part five, with a special attentiveness upon a phrase called ek pistios, ek pistios. And that is, in one sense, the key phrase that we deal with in justification. Today we're going to make a slight advance on this. You can do a doctrine of justification and then realize that you don't really define what it is. What is justification? And today I want to do a little bit more on that. Justification is also properly known as rectification inasmuch as it's a setting right of what is wrong or what has gone wrong. It's a complete setting right of what's gone completely wrong. Justification, we can call it rectification almost interchangeably, is a doctrine that belongs to apocalyptic eschatology. We've studied a lot about both those terms, apocalyptic revelational eschatology. There are two versions, and I woke up in the morning a couple mornings ago recalling this, and God graciously let me find where it was that I read these things several years ago. There are two versions of apocalyptic eschatology represented both in Romans and Galatians, where the doctrine of justification is thematic. One of those is forensic Judicial, we could call it, but forensics, the best way to view it. The other is cosmological. Now, J. Lewis Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, he spells his last name wrong, Ricky, but it's Lewis Mar- J. Lewis Martin, gave definitions to each of these eschatologies in the glossary at the end of his commentary on Galatians. Very excellent commentary on Galatians with an excellent translation, incidentally. So I thought it would be of value to the doctrine of justification and to all of us together to give both of these definitions just exactly as Martin has them in his glossary. This is because they address the question of just what it is that went wrong and has to be set right. The first one, cosmological apocalyptic eschatology is defined as, and these are his words, a specific understanding of what is wrong and a view of the future. Anti-God powers have managed to commence their own rule over the world, leading human beings into idolatry and thus into slavery, producing a wrong situation that was not intended by God, I would add, but permitted, 
and that will not long be tolerated by him. For in his own time, God will inaugurate a victorious and liberating apocalyptic war against these evil powers, delivering his elect from their grasp and thus making right that which has gone wrong because of the power's malignant machinations. This kind of apocalyptic eschatology is fundamental, he says, to Paul's Galatian letter. I would add only that it's also fundamental to Paul's Romans letter. On the other side, there is forensic apocalyptic eschatology. These each represent an entire horizon, really, and conversion means a change of horizons. We're going to learn about more about that in doing and living theology. So on the other side of this, and I think antagonistic to it, is forensic apocalyptic eschatology. For that, Martin has these words, also a specific understanding of what is wrong and a view of the future. Things have gone wrong because human beings have willfully rejected God, therefore bringing about death and the corruption and perversion of the world. Given this self-caused plight, God has graciously provided the cursing and blessing law as the remedy, thus placing before human beings the two ways, two and ways both capitalized, the way of death and the way of life. Human beings are individually accountable before the bar of the judge, but by one's own decision, one can accept God's law, repent of one's sins, receive a nomistic or legal forgiveness, and be assured of eternal life. For at the last judgment, the deserved sentence of death will be reversed by those who choose the path of law observance, whereas the sentence will be permanently confirmed to those who do not. This kind of apocalyptic eschatology is fundamental to that person whom he calls the teacher's message the teacher who opposes Paul, and it is also fundamental to the opponent of Paul in Romans. Now, there are variations on this forensic model. This is literally the horizon and the vision of the future that people hold today. There is the view afloat today, afloat in the atmosphere, that if someone believes in Jesus or believes the gospel and then continues a life of faithfulness or godliness, that at the last judgment, they will finally receive the verdict of justification. Another forensic view, this one I've held before in my own, before I went through a conversion or, or change of horizons, is the view that one is justified by one's individual faith in Christ and receives the imputation of righteousness and eternal life. This view adds in, as a separate doctrine, the doctrine of sanctification and avers or affirms that the one with judicial righteousness can be experientially righteous through a process of sanctification. According to this variation on the forensic view, if one chooses this process of sanctification and lives in it, then the possibility exists for great rewards. While the one who refuses sanctification 
goes under divine discipline into escalated stages of it, dies the sin unto death, and forfeits rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. All forensic views essentially agree with the eschatology of the teachers, as Martin called Paul's opponents in Galatia. And this is also the eschatology of Paul's opponent. It comes out in a dialectic, as we've seen in the translation that you'll be receiving, a dialectic between Paul and his opponent in Romans chapters 1 through 4, and then again in 9, 19 to 33. Now, what's bitterly ironic to me today is that these two variations of forensic apocalyptic theology conform more to the opponent of Paul than to the apostles' apocalyptic eschatology, which is cosmological and universally salvific. As Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, I'm not ashamed to say the words universally salvific and to present a translation that reflects that view. In Paul's view, and therefore on Paul's theological horizon, what went wrong was indeed the takeover of the human race and the universe or cosmos itself by malignant anti-God powers which were unleashed by the disobedient act of the first representative man Adam. The means of setting right what went wrong is Christ's death, which he died in faithful obedience to God and in his resurrection from the dead, by which these powers were defeated and humanity and all the cosmos liberated from their enslavement. I hold this view. God then wills for those human beings who are justified to awaken to their status of having been set right through the faithful death of Jesus Christ, the righteous one in their behalf. I'll explain this more as we go along. The message of the gospel then is the announcement of humanity's liberation. From sin, capital S-I-N, as a power, and death as a power, and flesh, the flesh, capital F, as an inimical, or an inimical, rather, adverse, suprahuman, anti-God, anti-humanity powers. This gospel elicits faith. When you hear it, it actually elicits faith, evokes it, kindles it in the hearers, and evokes Or ignites a life of faithfulness in them so that they may actually participate in the faithfulness of Christ as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. By this, a secondary meaning is given to the crucial declaration in Romans 1.17. Highly secondary. The righteous one will live by faith or by faithfulness. The righteous one in the secondary sense is the individual who has been justified by Christ's death and resurrection. Notice the person is already called the righteous one. They are righteous, justified. Again, 
this individual, the righteous one in the secondary sense, is the individual who has been justified by Christ's death and resurrection by God's act in Christ and therefore by God's faithfulness and Christ's faithfulness to the extent of death on a cross. The individual, therefore, is not justified by his or her faith or by his or her continued faithfulness, but by Christ's faithful death followed by God's faithful resurrection of him from the dead. God wills that the one who's already justified live by faith, implicit trust in God, and participation with Christ's faithfulness. That is, a post-justification, graced participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The one who is awakened to his or her justification by the faithfulness of Christ. Now, this is mainly a term developed in Galatians. It's called pistis Christu. And we've spent a lot of time showing that that does not translate as an objective thing, meaning your faith in Christ, but Christ's faithfulness. It's a subjective genitive. And therefore, that's the reason and the means for our justification. Now, this is going to get clearer I'm dropping lens by lens. I'm being an optometrist again today, and you're seeing a little clearer each time, I hope. And so again, the individual is not justified by his or her faith or by his or her continued faithfulness, but by Christ's faithful death, followed by God's faithful operation of raising him from the dead. God wills. That the one who is already justified live by faith, which is a post-justification, graced participation in the faithfulness of his son. The one who is awakened to his or her justification by the faithfulness of Christ, Pistis Christu, is able to say with Paul, I was crucified with Christ. And on the other end of that statement, that I now live by a participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God. Galatians 2.20. Now when we compare, and I'm only doing this just as a lead-in, we're going back to Romans, Galatians 2.16 with Galatians 2.21. There is an ultimate antimony here, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y, or an expression of absolute opposites, an antinomy. The ultimate antinomy that's expressed here is not between the individual's faith in Christ and the individual's works in obedience to the law. That's one of the main things I want to make clear in Romans. It's not a matter of human works versus human believing. It's a matter of human actions at all and Christ's faithful death or God's faithfulness in Christ that justifies. 
The antinomy is Christ's faithfulness, which is also known as his death. Paul equates the faithfulness of Christ with his death. In Philippians 2.8, he makes it explicit. He became obedient even to the extent of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, etc. So the, uh, you know the end result of that. Every knee bows, bends. Every knee bends. Every tongue confesses, acknowledges, openly praises Yahweh as Yeshua, seeing the faithfulness of God in Christ. And that's actually a pledge of allegiance. Ultimately, all the nations will pledge allegiance to the king of kings, gladly, willfully, willingly, joyfully. So the antinomy that Paul's dealing with in Galatians and Romans is between the works of the law as a way of justification and Christ's death. He says in Galatians 2.20, if we are justified by the works of the law, then Christ died for no reason at all. You see, what's being contrasted is the works of the law and Christ's death. We know this from Romans 5, 9, that we've been justified by his blood, that, when, that by his son's death, we who were enemies were reconciled to God while we were enemies. We know this. He did not say, if we are justified by the works of the law, then we believed for no reason at all. He doesn't say that. He says, if we are justified by the works of the law, then Christ died for no reason at all. So Galatians 2.16 makes it clear that the human being is not justified by the works of the law. We know this also from Romans 3.20 in connection with Psalm 143.2. But by pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that culminated in his death on the cross and was followed inexorably by his resurrection from the dead for our justification, Romans 4.25. Pistis Christu, therefore, the key phrase in Galatians, corresponds to Christ dying in Galatians 2.21 as the means and the reason for a human being's justification And by that is meant all human beings' justification. So Martin was right when he wrote this. Listen carefully. For Paul, God makes things right by bringing life where there was death. In parenthesis, he has Galatians 3.21 and Romans 4.17. God and God alone calls into existence things that don't exist and brings life out of death. God alone justifies. And he is correct also to say, that's J. Lewis Martin, God has set things right without laying down a prior condition. Very important to the gospel. I'll say it again. God has set things right Without laying down a prior condition of any sort, God's rectifying act, that is to say, 
is no more God's response to human faith in Christ than it is God's response to human observance of the law. God's rectification is not God's response at all, he says. It is the first move. It is God's initiative carried out by him in Christ's faithful death. So, our justification, as I would say it, is integrally united with our co-crucifixion and death with Christ Jesus. When were we crucified with Christ? When Christ was crucified for and as us. Being crucified with Christ and having died with him, Colossians 3.3, we were justified with him When he was raised from the dead. Before we were able to do good or evil. This goes back to Romans 6. Before those two kids. The twins. Jacob and Esau. Before they could do anything good or bad. God selected Jacob to be the one through whom the line to Messiah would be preserved. And he rejected Esau for that privilege. Doesn't say God. God didn't hate Esau. God didn't love Jacob and hate Esau. He simply elected Jacob to be the line through which the Messiah would come. And this happened before they did anything good or bad. Because it is not of him that wills or of him that runs. The one who says you're justified by your faith says it's of the one who wills. The one who says, and this is far worse, keeps believing in order to be saved, is the one who runs. But Paul's gospel says it's neither of him that wills or the one who runs, but God who shows mercy. And he shows mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy. This is so offensive to self-righteousness. He shows mercy to whomever he shows, wills to show mercy. And guess what? He shows mercy to everybody. And that mercy is saving mercy. The extension of mercy is saving mercy. According to his mercy, he saves. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. For salvation. And it's perceived to be that. And it's experienced as that. By everyone who believes. Not believes to be justified but believes that we've been justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ unto death, followed by the faithfulness of God to raise him up out of death and with him us. You see, I'm introducing you to a thing that's new today. It's called the gospel. It's very good news. There's no bad news in it. It's bad news to the self-righteous. It's bad news. It's totally a destructive thing. It's a judgment unto destruction of all self-righteous horizons. It's a change of, it, it, it induces a change of horizons. Now, 
This is the thing that's going to change the course of history from one of decline to progress and even to the redemption of history. Now, before we were able to do good or evil, before we could choose to believe or reject the gospel, we were crucified with Christ and died when he died. We were justified when he was justified. We were liberated from sin's enslavement and death's reign by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. In Paul's cosmological, apocalyptic, eschatological view, God set all right in the Christ event what had gone all wrong when sin passed on to the whole human race and death by sin. In, in Paul's view, and let's just say on his horizon, justification is rectification, setting right, making right what went wrong. As such, it includes, it includes, now listen carefully to this, it includes sanctification. Sanctification isn't an extra doctrine set in there so that you can be, you, you have an imputed righteousness, but you're the same as you ever were, but you get to live on a trampoline. Sin and rebound, sin and rebound, sin and rebound, sin and rebound, and that's not the Christian life. It's a caricature of it. It's one that the world rightly rejects. So then, as such, rectification includes sanctification as the continued willing and acting of God in human beings. It is God both willing and doing in you. That's what makes you have fear and trembling. God is in you, willing and doing. Sanctification, then, part of justification. It's part of setting things right by God's action. So sanctification is justification in that sense, which is the continued willing and acting of God in human subjects who are now engaged in the apocalyptic war, whether they know it or not. We're in an apocalyptic war and we've been called up to it as combatants. That explains the military language deployed by Paul in Romans 6, the section of Romans dealing with sanctification. Now, because our present theme is Romans doctrines, let's go back to some specific exegesis in Romans the epistle. The key phrase in Romans 1.17 is ek pistios. Here it is, ek, E-K, pistios. When I first began to exegete scriptures 30 or 40 years ago and read them in the Greek with A.T. Robertson and Kenneth Weiss and others, you'd look at the word ek and you'd say it means from, and then you'd think it means from everywhere you see the word ek. That's not the case at all. In fact... In my favorite lexicon, the Lunita 
lexicon according to semantic domains, this ekpistios doesn't simply mean from faith or even from faithfulness. Ekpistios, the ice piston that comes after that of that phrase is part of an idiom, as we've seen already, in which faithfulness alone is the means by which God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. So we have that phrase ekpistios and then ace or ice piston, from faith to faith, but that's not what it means. It means because of or by reason of faithfulness and faithfulness alone. That's an idiom of speech. And so it shouldn't even be translated from faith to faith or out from faith into faith. It simply means our justification or the righteousness of God is revealed from his faithfulness and his faithfulness alone. That's the idiom of speech. And I'm just, that's the only reason why I'm holding back on the translation of Romans because I'm still working on Romans 1, 17 and 18, how to make it, or 1, 16 and 17, how to make it more precise as to sense. Ek pistios. It's re, it is deployed, and I like military language instead of employed, deployed with effect in Romans 3.26. You can turn there if you want. But it's also in Romans 3.30. We're going to look at that carefully in a moment. Also in Romans 4.16, 9.30, and 9.32. So ek pistios is a key phrase. Again, it's used in Romans 3.26 with effect. It's deployed with effect on the forward line of troops. Romans 3.30, 4.16, 5.1, 9, 30, and 32. Ek, the little word ek, according to Lunita, is a marker of cause or reason. A marker of cause or reason with focus upon the source. Therefore, ek doesn't simply mean from, so you go to the lexicon and say it means from, you go to Strong's, which is already tainted by a hell doctrine and by the whole, whole, whole translations of the Bible are distorted and so are the concordances that define the Greek words in that Bible. It's amazing. It's am- the, you want to talk about conspiracy theory? That's a big one. And that's the reason why God calls pastors and teachers and why he makes pastors the authority over local churches and the table of organization. And that's why he gifts pastors and teachers to communicate the word Because it all isn't in there. I don't care how many times you've read your Bible. You can remain just as ignorant. In fact, you can be worse for having read your Bible. If it's distorted, if the translation is distorted into a passionately but not reasonably held idea that if you're good all your life, you're going to receive a verdict of justification at the last judgment. If not, to hell with you. I say you can read your Bible, and I've heard people, I've read my Bible 10 times through. Yes, and now you're 10 times more ignorant than someone who's never read a distorted translation. I don't buy that anymore. I, don't, I never did really buy it. But Now then, so ek doesn't just mean from. It's a marker Especially here, 
of reason or source. Consequently, it's a marker of cause or reason. Therefore, look at Romans 3.26. It can also be a marker of means as constituting a source, by means of or from. So by reason of or by means of is good. Ek means that. I never knew that. I thought it was supposed to be just from, and you can't do anything except from. Ek means from. No, it means by reason of or by means of. So so consider Romans 3.26, where ek means by reason of or by means of. So in Romans 3.26, by his, that's God's forbearing patience. Yes, I said for a demonstration of his saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis. This is my own translation. The present time of crisis being now the juncture of the two ages to show that he's perfectly just and the justifier of that one by means of faithfulness. Namely, Jesus. Again, Lunita shows that dia, another preposition, dia. You read that in your Strong's or your exegesis, and you say dia always, well, it's like diagonal. It means through. It always means through or can even mean by, but it's got to mean one of those two things. No. Studying in the semantic domains, Dia is a marker of an intermediate agent with an implicit or explicit causative agent. So, yes, it does mean through, but it can also be a marker of the instrument by which something is accomplished. So it means by means of, through, or with. Consequently, this is why I love Romans 3.30. Because look at it for a moment. In other words, dia means the same as ek, as a marker of means or instrument through which something is accomplished. So in this case, Romans 3.30, dia has the same meaning as ek. One of those cases in which that's true, therefore, is Romans 3.30, where Paul declares this. That the one God, that is the Lord God of Israel. This is actually an allusion to Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. So Paul takes that and says the one God justifies the circumcised. Back in Romans 1.16, that means the Jew or all Jews. By means of faithfulness, that's his own faithfulness and Jesus Christ's faithfulness also the Messiah and the circumcised that's the Greek in Romans 1 16 or all non-Jews by the same faithfulness so translation of Romans 3 30 has to sense it'll appear in your translation when I give it to you since indeed he is one quotes because it's referring to Deuteronomy 6.4, since indeed he is one God, he is the one who justifies the circumcision, or Jews under the law, by reason of Messiah's faithfulness, and the uncircumcision, Gentiles without the law, through the same faithfulness. 
This springs forth from the thesis verse, Romans 1.17, in which we studied last week, in which Habakkuk 2.4b says, Ha de dikaios ek pistios mu zesatai, which means, so the righteous one by my faithfulness will live. As we've already noted, the personal genitive possession singular mu, M-O-U, in Habakkuk 2.4b refers to the faithfulness as being that of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who is ultimately faithful to his covenant with Israel and unconditionally committed to his promise to Abraham and to his seed, which Paul says is Christ. And therefore, Romans 3.30 specifically refers to the Lord God of Israel. It relates to, again, the famous Shema, which means listen up or be attentive. It reads like this in Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Yisrael. Listen up, Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Which translates, listen, Israel. Yahweh Our God, Yahweh, is one. And Paul's saying that one God justifies, rectifies, sets right the circumcised or the Jews by his own faithfulness expressed in Messiah Jesus, Yeshua. And he justifies the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, By the same faithfulness. Ek is the same as dia. The same faithfulness. Consequently, Paul is saying that the covenant God of Israel, whose faithfulness is unilateral, if we become faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because his covenant is a unilateral, unconditional, universal promise. That in your seed, Abraham, that seed, singular, being Christ, all the nations, including Israel, will be blessed. Blessed with eternal life. All the nations, all mankind. So Paul is saying that the covenant God of Israel justifies or rectifies all Jews by his own faithfulness and all Gentiles by the very same faithfulness. It may be argued here and elsewhere then that the justified consequently have the Lord God of Israel as their God. If the God of Israel is my God, it must mean I'm Israel. The Israel of God are the people whose God is the God of Israel. That's almost logical. Galatians 6.16. In other words, God's authentic Israel is in Christ the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And it's God's will to sum up all things and all beings in Christ the Messiah of Israel. We'll hit that more in the future. Throughout Romans then, ekpistios, univocally, all the way through, means the same thing. By the faithfulness of God revealed in the faithfulness of of Jesus Christ. When you've lifted me up, he said to the Pharisees, you will know that I am he. That's the main point of theology. 
Christ crucified is the greatest revelation of the God of Israel, of the God of creation, of the God who is love. This includes Romans 4.16, which essentially expands on Romans 3.30. Romans 4.16. This is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of faithfulness. That means Messiah's faithfulness. It's univocal. One voice, one meaning throughout. Ekpistios refers to God's faithfulness revealed in Jesus Christ. Romans 4.16 again, this is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah's faithfulness, so that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to those of the law, but also to those of the faithfulness of Abraham, who is the father of us all, both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles, in other words, have Abraham as their patriarch, and so both are Israel. Romans 4.16 is found in the heart of the narrative about Abraham. That's another very strong thing that has to be clarified. The narrative about Abraham. With special attention to Romans chapter 4, Douglas Campbell observed this. He said this, the faith spoken of repeatedly here by Paul is not the individual's faith whereby he or she converts, but it is evidence of a participation in the faithful Christ that has already been effected. Abraham's faith then, I say, is not to be emulated but participated in inasmuch as it is a graced participation in Christ's faithfulness to God demonstrated before the incarnation of Christ. Jesus himself is the author and perfecter of faith, says Hebrews 12.1. He is the author of it and the perfecter of it wherever and whenever it's found. It is also a faith that is generated by the promise received and therefore by the spirit of Jesus Christ, who is the yes and the amen of all the promises of God. So we, what does it mean when it said we walk by faith? It doesn't say we're justified by faith, but being justified by Christ's faithfulness, we walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7. It also says that the elders, men and women from generations previous to the incarnation, their stories cataloged in Hebrews 11, 2 to 40, acted admirably. Sometimes they acted heroically by faith in a way that pleased God, Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. And that means that God is pleased with Christ's faithfulness as it is participated in by human beings, individuals throughout history. Listen carefully to this. In fact, those human beings are a secondary line of of defense against history's decline. 
and the total catastrophic end of nations like the United States of America. To reiterate a point made in part two of this doctrine, in Romans 4, the noun dikaiosune, righteousness, is used eight times. 4, 3, 4, 5, All with a reference to rectitude. Notice rectitude and rectification. Or uprightness, that which I call God-approved livingness. It is not referring to justifying faith. It is referring to the faith that pleases God on the part of the justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Living by faith, therefore, complies with very pleasantly, very joyously, the gospel of our justification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we could say in a secondary sense, the righteous one, that's you already because of the justification act of God upon your life, shall live by faith. Faith becomes the defining element of our life. Faithful trust. Faith that's the hope of things. Faith is the evidence of things, the conviction of things hoped for. I have an entirely different view of the future now. It isn't God rapturing a few million people off the earth and pounding the daylights out of the rest of humanity with 100-pound hailstones by an ignorant and crass interpretation of apocalyptic language in Revelation. It is a vision of God being all in all. It is a vision of Jesus Christ having reigned over all things and put everything under his feet, including those malignant powers handing that kingdom and all that he's redeemed over to the Father so the Father can be all in all. That's a heck of a change of a future view. You thought I was going to say hell of a change. Hell might be in my vocabulary, but it ain't a place. Now, consequently, the sense of ekpistios in Romans 1.17, is duplicated in Romans 5.1, where being justified by faith, as it reads in most translations, means by the faithfulness of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Go right back to 4.25 that preceded 5.1. He raised Jesus from the dead not only for Jesus' own justification, vindication, liberation, but also for our justification. Romans 4.25. And by our, O-U-R, is meant the whole human race in all of its times. Romans 5.18. The problem, people are dead. They're dead while they're living because of the reign of sin. Sin pays a wage it's death the solution is to be given life where death once was and that can't happen by any agency or action but God's and it happened when God raised Jesus from the dead so 
In Romans 9.30 and 32, the theme is recovered briefly in the dialectic between Paul and his opponent. Carries on once again from Romans 9.19 to 33. In Romans 9.30 and 32, ek pistios, used again, is deployed with the same sense as it was in all other passages in Romans. And so, 9.30 to 33 reads this way in my expanded translation as to sense. Paul says, what shall I say in response to this then? How about this? The Gentiles who were not actively pursuing a status of rectitude have apprehended the status of rectitude. But it's a rectitude that's from faith on the basis of Messiah's fidelity, ek pistios. But Israel, pursuing the law as a means to attain righteousness, that's the forensic view, has not overtaken that law, meaning As Paul says it in Galatians 3.21, there ain't no such thing as a law that leads to righteousness, that you follow and it results in righteousness. So the opponent objects in verse 32, why did Israel not attain this rectitude, this so-called God-approved living? As Paul says, because they were not pursuing the status of rectitude on the basis of faithfulness, Messiah's own faithfulness, but on the basis of works. In compliance with the law of Moses. While pursuing this righteousness on the basis of their own works, they struck their foot against the stone that trips people up. As it is written, look, I'm laying in Zion a a stone that makes people trip. It's a rock of offense. That's the crucified Christ. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. The point is that whenever ek pistios is deployed in Paul's argument and in the doctrine of justification, it consistently and without variation refers to the faithfulness of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, specifically in his faithful death or his death, which I call the climax of his faithful obedience. At the close of which he said, Into your hands I entrust my spirit, mission accomplished to tell us die. Divine mission one, accomplished. The justification of all mankind, finished, done. God says, I'll give you a receipt for that. Resurrection from the dead. Now, a status of rectitude. What is it? Jesus Christ, by his faithful death, or his death, which was the climax of his faithful obedience to God, universally justified all mankind by being obedient to God's universally saving righteousness and loving will. A status of authentic rectitude and therefore of integrity and uprightness simply called rectitude, in God's eyes, is simply a livingness that's conformed to Christ's faithfulness. That happens over a long haul. So we have to have mercy on each other. And this is conformity that God has made possible by a graced participation in Christ's own faithfulness through a thing called instauration, or the law of the cross. 
So there is a life. And there is a lifestyle. A livingness is what I like to call it, as Moltmann did. That includes a new way of thinking and a new intentionality. A new way of intending. A new way of seeing things and seeing people. That is pleasing to God and of which God heartily approves. It's a graced participation in the faithfulness of Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live, that is in the mortal body, in this flesh, this mortal body, I live by a participation in the faithfulness of the son of God. The faithfulness of the Son of God continues now in history. In the life-giving spirit, producing in God's people this faithfulness. In people who have been justified or set right in God's sight by reason of Messiah's fidelity. And that's everybody. Just... Each person, one by one, has to be awakened to it. Paul's presentation of the gospel of God is consistent. It's cogent. It's straight all the way through. Our grace participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness by the Spirit is what we call, I call, God-approved livingness. The abbreviation is G-A-L, gal, permit, therefore, the gendered language. It is living in compliance with our justified status. One of the ways that this is shown to be so is by this little prepositional phrase, ek pistios. So in closing, and I will close, God who effectively set or made right all the human race through his own faithfulness as demonstrated in Jesus Christ by the same act of justification by the Holy Spirit, makes people right with him in a life that participates in Christ's faithfulness. This is sanctifying grace, which is a graced imitation of the active spiration of the Holy Spirit. Now we're cross we're cross pollinating here. It's a cross pollination into doing and living theology, as R. M. Duran put it. Sanctifying grace has been the name given the created base of a real relation to the Holy Spirit. That base thus participates in active spiration or the divinely constituted relation to the Holy Spirit. And so, in the Father and the Son, as together they breathe the Holy Spirit. We are actually the breath of the Holy Spirit creates sanctification in us, a livingness that's pleasing to God. In this sense, justification is sanctification. Sanctification is part of the process by which God makes people right. This also points to participation in what is called This goes over cross-pollinating our other series, passive spiration, which is the love of God poured out in our hearts. 
the love of God poured out in the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, breathed into us by the Father and the Son. Now listen carefully. Keep your attentiveness up for this last couple of moments. The life that pleases God is a faith that works by love. And it's a created participation in active and passive spiration, cross-pollination to our other series, which is a graced imitation of two of the four divine relations. You're not familiar with that? You will be through our other one. We're cross-pollinating with our series called Doing and Living Theology. This also amounts to a graced imitation of God, Ephesians 5.1, who is love, 1 John 4.8 and 4.16. And a graced imitation... Not an imitation by mimicry, but a graced imitation, meaning it's produced in us by God in us, willing and doing. A graced imitation of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. He laid his life down for us. We ought also to lay our lives down. That's not a moral imperative. That's a realistic result of Christ in us. We lay our lives down because it's Christ in us who laid his life down. For others. So justification is ultimately an ongoing divine action in the Holy Spirit who lives and who breathes in us and who is in reality Jesus Christ living and breathing in us. Christ lives in me. How serious do you take that? The Holy Spirit in us is Jesus Christ in us, living and breathing in us. For Christ, the last Adam, unlike the first Adam, through whom death came, the second or the last Adam, and there's no Adams after this Adam, the last Adam, is a life-giving spirit. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Unlike the first man, Adam, a living soul through whom death came, the last Adam, Christ, is a life-giving spirit. He gives life to whomsoever he wills. Just like God who gives mercy to whoever he gives mercy, he gives mercy to everybody. God gives life and Christ gives life to everyone he wills to give life. And that's everybody. So then, I'm so happy about this. Justification is not merely a forensic imputation of righteousness, even if it's Christ's righteousness imputed. Neither is justification a verdict. This is so horrible. I can't believe people live under this. A verdict pronounced at the last judgment, along with the gift of eternal life, so-called gift, to those who will have demonstrated that they did good while they strove for immortality and glory in their earthly lives. That's amazing. Yeah, the so-called new perspective says that. It says justification even though you kind of have it now through faith in Christ, 
you, if you live a good life, it'll be proven that you had it when God finally pronounces you justified at the final last judgment. That's, you can have the second or the third or the 85th perspective. I'll take God's perspective. So then, finally, justification is a real setting right of human beings universally in the Christ event. Divine Mission 1. And it continues as individually by the Holy Spirit in Divine Mission 2, an action of justification as sanctification, also a divine action, an action which will only be completed in bodily resurrection, which is the glorification of all whom God justified. That's next increment. We'll revisit Romans 8.30. God justified who? Everybody. But he glorified those whom he justified. What? Romans 8.30. So who does God glorify and who did God glorify? Hmm. Answer next week. You probably already know the answer. It's self-evident, but we'll explain it. So fi- this is what I'll, the last thing I'll do today. All of this gives Romans 1.16 to 17 the following expanded sense. This is what I say. Romans 1, 16 to 17 reads like this. If you expand it out and give its proper sense, for I am not ashamed of this very good news because it is experienced as the power of God for salvation by everyone who believes, by the Jew first and also by the Greek. I say not ashamed, verse 17, because By it, the righteousness of God, his saving act in Christ and by the spirit is apocalyptically revealed, apocalypto, from God's faithfulness in Christ Jesus to Christ's faithfulness in which we who believe have the privilege to participate. Just as it is written, the righteous one, Jesus and all humanity in him will live because of faithfulness, Christ's faithful obedience unto the death of the cross. So, Father, we thank you that you have set things right and you are setting things right, and it's all a matter of your action. We stand before you today, at least I do, in the fear and in the trembling, in the awesome reverence that it is God in us both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. It's astonishing, Father, that we in fact have that status of justification and it's been a post-justification status ever since Jesus said to tell us thy. And when you awaken the faith that we have been justified by his faithfulness. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is then to live by faith and a participation in Messiah's faithfulness. You've knocked on the door, Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And as we prayed in the waiting room today, Our prayer was simply, come in. And you've come into this assembly today.
may in the future, as we hear the word of God, as we hear the scriptures taught, may it go way beyond just a tutorial in scriptural knowledge. May, in fact, we hear and may we, in fact, respond to the word as the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, spoken directly to our hearts. We ask this, I ask this, many join me in this request, in Jesus' name, amen.